Check it now. Ah, oh, there we go. You can hear my delightful voice. I say delightful voice. I'm coming in from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm here with my wife and baby back there, Beth and, and Tom. So uh, feel free. Tom's like the coolest kid ever. Say hi to him. He loves it. But I'm coming in from Pittsburgh. You may not want to hear my voice because in Pittsburgh, uh, they actually have their own regional dialect there. Anybody ever heard someone speak Pittsburghese before? Isn't it awful? <laughs> it's atrocious because you guys have y'all, right? Like you all, y'all comes together. Makes sense. In Pittsburgh, they decided to put together you ones. And they say yins. You ever, yins, anyone ever heard yins before? Yeah? Isn't it awful? So if I break into like my Pittsburgh dialect while I'm, I'm speaking today and I start talking about yins, gun, down, Tom, John, Eagle, and that, I'm not speaking in tongues. <laughs> it's not glossolalia. I don't think, it, it, it's more like whatever the speaking in demonic tongues is. It's just not a beautiful thing. But I love it. I love Pittsburgh, but I'm really enjoying uh, being in Tyler today. Um, it's good to be here. My least favorite thing in the world is when a, a speaker comes to you like right after lunch and he makes you stand up and like do calisthenics to wake you up. You ever had that happen? It's, it's miserable, so I'm not going to do that. But you know, if you, if you fall asleep because you've got taco truck, uh, I, we don't have taco trucks in Pittsburgh. We have pierogi trucks. And that's not a lie. We do. Um, but we don't have taco trucks. And I'm just so full of delicious tacos. And so if you take a nap after lunch, like it's, it's, it's my gift to you, <laughs> right? Because what good is having a refreshed conference if you can't just let the love of God do its work through the provision of tacos? I just don't know. It's good to be here. Um, I, I do have a very difficult uh, thing to do today. I, I'm, gonna, I'm making you a pitch. I'm going to pitch you a theological doctrine, right? And, and this is not just any theological doctrine. It may be the most offensive, loathed, unappreciated theological doctrine out of all of the theological doctrines one could theoretically pitch. And I'm going to pitch you this doctrine. Um, and, and to do that, I've been watching the old videos on YouTube of like Billy Mays. Rest, his peace, rest in peace, right? Billy Mays, right? The guy for OxyClean, you know? Billy Mays here for OxyClean. And he had the big tank and he'd pour it in and the tank would like magically turn clear. Um, I, I watched videos of, of him, watched some reruns of Shark Tank. Any Shark Tank fans here? I'm always envious because I have no good ideas for Shark Tank. And every now and then I'll pitch one to a friend. I'll be like, like, what if we turned a phone case into a Swiss Army knife? So you had your phone and a Swiss Army knife at the same time. And he'd be like, it's done already. I'm like, ah, oh, darn it. No Shark Tank for me. Um, I even went back to that movie from 2015, Joy, with Jennifer, uh, what's her name? Jennifer Lawrence, right? Uh, and, you know, it was good, but nobody's talked about it since 2015 when it came out. So I guess it was all right, uh, right? Because she invented the squeegee mop, right? That's the story. And got on QVC, and she was sort of a struggling single mom. Anyway, so she was great at the pitch eventually there. So I'm going to make a pitch today to you. And here, here's my pitch. Let me get this out. <sighs> Brian Gerald here. I'm wondering, have you ever wondered why people continually look at their phones in movie theaters? Have you ever wondered why in the world people are the way that they are? Why do people text and drive? Why do people answer the phone when someone asks about their extended vehicle warranty? Why do you spend precious time in your life wondering why people choose to be internet trolls? Do you waste hours uh, strategizing on how you could change your imperfect spouse, your imperfect friends, your imperfect children, your imperfect parents? Have you ever sat there in self-loathing, wondering, why can't I improve this area of my life? Why does this workout plan seem to work for these people, but it doesn't work for me? 
Are you sitting there wondering, friends, uh, what is the state of humanity? Because there are 80, not episodes, seasons, 80 seasons of the Real Housewife franchise. 80 seasons. The cities are different. The drama is the same. Why do we need 80 seasons? Friends, if you have ever looked at exasperation in the world and wondered why the world is what it is, why it's so terrible, but also looked at yourself and wondered why you can't quite get your life together, have I got the theological doctrine for you? I'm pitching you today, friends, the doctrine of original sin. I'm pitching you the doctrine. Uh, Oh, this is like, all right, the wheels are turning now, right? The doctrine of original sin. And um, I'm doing this because uh, I think it may be one of the most helpful, explanatory, illuminating things a person can possibly engage with in the Christian faith for understanding why the world is the way it is. Because there are a lot of people who look at the world and they come up with theories about why the world is the way it is. And you listen to them and you think, no, that's not right. That doesn't make sense. The data doesn't say it from the social science. And not only that, but it doesn't live up to my life experience. But I'm here to tell you, original sin's got some power. It's got some juice. It's got some vibe. So I want to spend some time pitching this to you today. And thankfully, I have longer than like an infomercial pitch where, you know, it's 30 seconds. I've got some time and we can kind of go through this together in a helpful way. Um, And I'm not pitching you something that's going to be trash in a little bit, right? Vince Offer, remember him? The other pitch man, right? Hey guys, Vince here for the ShamWow, (laughs) right? It's made in Germany, so you know it's good. I bought a ShamWow back in 2007. It lasted a week and I threw it out. Big old hole in the middle of it. Never trust uh, Vince Offer, apparently. But I'm, I'm, I'm giving you something today that's got 2,000 years, if not longer, of sort of pure, tested, proven uh, goodness in the sense that it's true and it makes sense of the world. So I'm not pitching you anything wrong. My hope is today uh, to, to, to reevaluate this in a time when the doctrine of original sin is perhaps the most loathed and underappreciated and not spoken about doctrine in all of the church, except for maybe in mockingbird circles. Um, and so here's what I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm going to talk about original sin in a world where it's hated. Uh, one writer said that original sin is the red sock that got into the white load of your washing machine that colors everything pink when you pull it out. It's like, wow, that is some creative hatred towards a theological doctrine. Another tried to explain it away as being an ancient Roman power grab, that the Roman Empire was collapsing, and they just wanted to make people feel bad about themselves so that they could control them more. It's like, well, that's not super helpful either. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we're still talking about it today. Uh, Others have tried to say that original sin is responsible for every single negative feeling that you have had in your inner self. All your self-loathing, all your inner guilt, everything you confess to your therapist, they try to blame it on original sin. And they said if these Christians had just infected the world with all of their low self-esteem, then maybe we wouldn't need therapists and maybe we would just like ourselves a lot more. People say that. And it's not just people outside the church either, it's people inside the church. Maybe you've heard of the doctrine in some denominations of the inward light, the inward light. And the, the, the idea of, of the inward light, this is a, a Quaker idea, is that if you sort of just sit and listen enough that the spark of Jesus is within everybody, and if you just listen hard enough, you'll hear the voice of Jesus speak and tell you what to do. Or maybe you've heard of Christian perfection, another one, where this side of your baptism, this side of being a Christian, God can get rid of all the sins in your life if you just work hard enough and trust him hard enough. 
And for me, of course, I, I don't think any of that's helpful because I'm pitching to you the exact opposite. But we don't need to have PhDs. We don't need to be authors. We don't need to, to sort of be super hoity-toity thinker people to reject the idea of original sin because truly it is an affront uh, to all of our self-understandings of who we are. It is not a flattering doctrine. And uh, to start with, I want to give you this definition. This is sort of the working definition today of what I mean by original sin. And it's contemporary language. If you're a theological person, you'll, miss, you'll know some stuff is missing here. But, but here's what I'm talking about. Original sin is the idea that one of the consequences of the Adam and Eve story at the beginning of the Bible is that every human being in history is born pre-programmed with their own set of neuroses, habits, and desires that are ultimately self-centered and not part of God's original plan. There you go. That's what I'm going to talk about today. That every human history, every human in history has this pre-programmed set of neuroses and habits and desires that are ultimately self-oriented and not part of God's original plan. Um, so you didn't come to Mockingbird Tyler to hear like a definition of like the theological word concupiscence. Oh my gosh. Or like uh, you didn't come to get a like Ciceronian stoicism lecture either, but 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 that's what I'm going to work with. That's my contemporary language definition, that when we talk about original sin, we're talking about how everyone is programmed with their own set of neuroses and habits and desires that are ultimately self-oriented and not part of God's original plan. You know, who's here really excited about original sin now, right? Right? Oh, good. None of you put your hands up. That means you're honest. <laughs> it means you're real people because we live in a world uh, that is fundamentally opposed to this idea that we're all sort of broken in some way, that we're not, we're self-centered and, and not part of what God's original plan is. Um, you know, God bless Lady Gaga. Born this way is a bop. It's a great song. I dance to this song when no one's looking and sometimes when people do look. Um, I have a crush on Lady Gaga. Her music's phenomenal. Um, but most people in the world would think I'm born this way and it's a good thing. Most people would say, hey, you know, the future is promising, and if I just work hard enough and I sort of self-diagnose myself in the right way, what's going to happen is I'm going to understand the problem and then I can fix it. And maybe that looks like therapy, maybe it looks like um, a really um, intense gym membership, but for most people, they abide by the words of the secular prophet, Little Orphan Annie, uh, who once foretold that the sun will come out tomorrow. And if they just keep working hard enough, driving enough in that direction, they might be able to achieve some level of perfection in life. So yeah, this is like a combination of the task of Sisyphus, right? The, the rolling the boulder up to the top only to have it to go down again, but also a fool's errand. It seems like a really difficult thing to put forward here that I'm going to talk about original sin. And yet, I still think it is the most helpful piece of Christian doctrine in terms of understanding the world around us. I've been watching uh, Kim's Convenience in quarantine. Any fans of Kim's Convenience? I see some hands. Okay, good, good. Oh, there's some advocates here. If you, if you don't remember anything else about my talk, I've got some clips I want to show you from Kip's, Kim's Convenience today, and you're going to be like, I need to add that to my Netflix queue. And so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about King's, Kim's Convenience because it's going to show you a little bit of what I'm talking about, about the world around us. Uh, it's on Netflix, seasons four out of five seasons. The fifth season just wrapped. It's a Canadian TV show, so you may not be able to get all of it here in the United States yet. And this is season uh, one, episode four is our first clip. So AV guys, go ahead and spool that up and get ready here. I'll tell you when to play. Um, and uh, the, the clip shows two of the main characters, the father and the daughter. The father, um, everyone calls him Appa in the show. That's uh, Korean for father. And uh, the daughter is Janet. 
and uh, the two of them are, are commiserating uh, over uh, mutual experiences of frustration with other people. Uh, the daughter, uh, you see her cousin has come to visit from Korea, and until her cousin from Korea came to visit, everyone thought that Janet was the cool Korean person in town. And so she knew where all the good restaurants were, and she knew sort of Korean culture. But then her cousin from Korea comes over, and all of a sudden she has an identity crisis. And they fight, and they yell, and, and Janet sort of dismisses her publicly, and it's a, it's a big thing. And at the same time that's going on, the father, Appa, he is working with an air conditioning repair tech. And, and he gets into a fight with him about sort of talking too much and not working enough, and they get into a big fight. And then um, they have a falling out. And so now the father and the daughter, they have this mutual experience of frustration. They come together to talk about it, and that's what this clip is. So uh, tech team, go ahead and play that first clip from Kim's Convenience. doesn't look good. He's a Frank. He can't fix anything. Too busy talking. So are you getting someone else? <sighs> you remember story in the Bible? Davy, he just killed some man and sleep with a wife? So you killed Frank and slept with his wife? No, King Davy. He just sleep with a Bathsheba. Everybody knowing, but nobody telling to him. Then a prophet Nathan is coming and tell truth. People don't like to hear truth, but they need to hear truth. Hmm? Appa, for the first time in my whole life, I agree with you. Really? First time? Yeah. And sometimes you need to be honest with people. Yeah, because some people don't know how... Uh... Annoying? Yeah, annoying they eat. I know, and everyone else pretends like they're not annoying because they don't want to hurt their feelings. Yeah, but we're just helping them. Exactly, because who else is going to tell them that? Nobody! Janet... You and me is exactly the same. I, I wouldn't say, like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. We are like a truth-telling prophet in a Bible. You know, Appa, all the truth-telling prophets in the Bible had no friends. That's why we need to stick together. Uh. Isn't that great? All the truth-telling prophets in the Bible have no friends. And yet we all would rather be the truth-telling prophet uh, than the person receiving the word from the truth-telling prophet, right? And so this is a talk for everybody who's laughing at them and not with them. Uh, people who look at that and say, oh, look at those guys. They're, they're really funny. They, they, they're going to tell everybody else what's wrong and not deal with their own thing. But that's exactly our own situation today. And so I want to talk more about this concept of original sin. And what I want to do first is I want to make the pitch first that if you're a believer in original sin, one of the benefits that you're going to get is that you have been inoculated. I didn't mean to use virus vaccine language, but it makes sense. You've been inoculated against a really even more toxic belief, which is the idea of perfectionism. If you believe in original sin... Uh, the Christian doctrine, as we've talked about it a minute ago, that everybody has their own sort of neuroses and default behaviors and um, bad habits that are part of their own programming that is fundamentally selfish and God didn't intend. If you believe that, then, well, one of the things you can take off the table for your life is the idea that you will be perfect or that things will be perfect. Um, you know, in fact, just show of hands, how many people here know that perfectionism for Christians was explicitly outlawed as a heresy in the church. Anybody know this? Okay, story time, friends. I saw one hand in the back, and that guy has a PhD in New Testament, so he, he right, story time. 
So um, you, church history lesson. For the first 300 years of the church, everyone spent time trying to figure out who the heck this Jesus guy was, right? And, and so they were trying to figure out, is he God, is he man? Uh, both. Uh, is, it was, was he um, sort of lesser than, than God or equal to God? No, he was equal. And so for the first 300 years of church history, everyone was trying to figure out who this Jesus guy was. And one of the things they did was they, they all sent delegations together and they had these things called councils. Uh, maybe you've heard of the Nicene Creed that came from the Council of Nicaea. And the idea was that this was before denominations were really a thing, uh, that everyone could kind of come together as a church and work through these things and we'd, we'd find an answer by God's grace. So um, for the first 300 years of the church, we're trying to figure out who Jesus was. And then around 3, 350, we kind of figured that out. And then during this time period, there was a monk in Great Britain named Pelagius who came down to Rome, which was kind of the center of the faith. And he did not like what he saw. He saw moral laxity everywhere. He saw everyone sort of not living up to his standards of morality. I mean, he's a monk. His standards are pretty high. And he started to write about it. And he started to go through this process of saying, hey, 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 hold on a second. Why are you guys being so morally lax in Rome? Do you not read the Bible? Do you not see all the rules that God has laid out about what it means to be a good Christian? And so he starts to say, like, when the apostles say that, you know, in like Peter, they say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Like, why aren't you guys perfect? Why aren't you guys perfect? Why would God give us these rules if they were meant, uh, if they weren't meant to be followed? What is the purpose? And he said, you know, the real root of this, there's a guy in your midst who's doing a, you a terrible disservice. And his name is Augustine. And uh, he's talking about this doctrine of grace a lot. And you know what? This doctrine of grace thing, it's not biblical. It's got to go because it's leading to moral laxity in the church. So Augustine didn't take too kindly to that and started writing some very strongly worded letters back. And they wrote back and forth. And they published open letters. And then they started writing letters to each other's bosses about how they were both, you know, sort of improper Christians. Lots of letters being written. And finally, they started putting together councils to, to ask this question. What about the rules of the Bible? Christians are baptized. They've been saved. Why shouldn't we expect Christians to follow all the rules? Why shouldn't we expect Christians to be perfect if God is in their life and the Holy Spirit is within them? And so what ends up happening is the councils get together and they have representatives from this Pelagius guy who's like, look, God gave us rules. What purpose are the rules if we're not supposed to just follow them? Why would God give us rules if we aren't supposed to follow them in the first place? And Augustine starts to say, well, he gave us rules because he knows we can't follow them. And that drives us to Jesus. And, and God gave us these rules to remind us just how far we fall short of his perfection so that we would repent and draw closer to him. And they were fighting it out and fighting it out. And finally, um, gosh, by the time they get to it, the writings are there, but they're both dead at that time. But then they get a council together and they say, look, this is a good question. We should wrestle through this. And by the end of the council, uh, they said, you know who's right is Augustine. That the purpose of God's law was not to make you perfect, but it was to drive us to Jesus. And even Christians who have been baptized and saved, even Christians who have been baptized and saved, will still continue to be sinners this side of Jesus' return. So that's my sort of story time with Pastor Brian uh, story of the Pelagian and Augustinian controversy, which documented about 50 years of the, occupied about 50 years of the church's thought life between like three, uh, 380 and 420. And the council got together and said, anybody who thinks a Christian should be perfect, like uh, Pelagius does, is a heretic and they need to be kicked out of the church because that's just not Christian.
How crazy is it that in a time like ours, so dedicated to perfection, that Christians 1,700 years ago already had this figured out? That we were not made, that the, 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 the perfection that comes from God is glimpsed at and experienced in a small way here, but it's coming. It hasn't arrived yet. And yet, if you look around today, we are swimming in a world of perfectionism, aren't we? I don't think that's an exaggeration because, well, you know, um, we're, we talk about looking at perfect actors playing perfect roles on TV with their perfect jawlines and their perfect hourglass figures, like mine. And then um, you, you see them with perfectly written lines uh, written by the top writers who know how to craft a perfect story. And then when the, there's a break in the action, they cut to advertisements with more perfect actors, with more products to sell you, promising that if you buy the product, it will make you perfect. Um, that there's so much in this world of self-help. There's so much in this world to say, you know what? Perfection is great. I haven't even talked about Instagram yet, right? I mean, I think Pelagius would have had a great Instagram account, frankly. <laughs> he would have loved Instagram. And in my mind's eye, I have this mental image of a monk in like brown robes, like squatting in a creek, right, as the cold water like runs over his waist. And his, his Instagram, that's the photo, and the caption says, you know, no time for lustful thoughts today, because he didn't have cold showers, so he's in a cold creek, you know. <laughs> hashtag purity ring, hashtag no lust today. No lust for Jesus. I don't know. But, but I think Pelagius would have had an awesome Instagram feed, um, and he would have loved it and eaten it all up. We hide our flaws with clothes and makeup. We hide our imperfections by keeping it all in and then spilling it all out to a pastor, a therapist, a confidant. Um, you know, be perfect as Gwyneth Paltrow is perfect. Be perfect as Ron Swanson is perfect. Be perfect as my older sister is perfect. Be perfect as my parents want me to be. Be perfect as that successful classmate in your class. Be perfect as Marsha Brady is perfect. And by the way, go back and watch that episode because in reality, like that's the most crushing episode of the Brady Bunch. I mean, it's not supposed to be crushing, but it is because the, the problem with that story is that Marsha actually is perfect that Jan's complaint about how everything comes out right for Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Like, she's not wrong. So anyway, that's a crushing episode of 70s television for your viewing pleasure at some point. Um, but if you believe in original sin, you start to realize that the king has no clothes. That there is no such thing as perfection as the secular world wants it to be. And the only perfection that we may have hope for comes from God himself and not from our own doing and striving. So that's the first reason I think you should believe in original sin because we understand that perfectionism is the more toxic doctrine. At the end of the day, what else is there? It's either you can be perfect and you're not trying hard enough or there's something keeping you from being perfect. It's either perfectionism or original sin at the end of the day. And so what original sin does is it inoculates you from the worst of perfection. Second thing, if it inoculates you from the worst of perfectionism, it also is going to give you, friends, uh, patience with other people who also are defined by original sin. The King James Bible says long-suffering, which sounds like no fun at all to suffer for a long time. And yet, if you believe in original sin, um, the people who are closest to you who drive you up the wall, like Matt said earlier, nothing made him believe in original sin more than spending every waking moment with his family during quarantine. 
And yet, when you understand that original sin is a real thing, you might actually want to be able to spend time with them. You might have patience for them when they're driving you up the wall, and you might even be able to ask for forgiveness when you drive them up the wall too, but that's later on. Um, because if original sin is true, that every human being in existence has their own uh, habits, neuroses, um, and, and patterns of behavior that are centralized, selfish, and against what God had planned for the world, if you say that, um, you're releasing them from perfectionism too. It's not just yourself, it's them. Uh, if original sins are true, then the, the foibles and the failures, uh, they will not be surprises anymore, right? And so if you're driving down the road and somebody is texting and driving and they rear-end you, you're like, instead of saying this person is terrible and I'm righteous, you can say, you know what? I just got unlucky because, you know, this happens. People are infected with original sin. You know, you're going to go to a movie theater and you're going to be really still, again, angry. Wow, what a great talk Todd's was. You're going to see people with their phone out four rows below and they're spoiling your view because they have the bright phone on and they don't realize what they're doing. And instead of throwing popcorn at them or getting kicked out, you might actually want to politely ask them first. Then you can yell at them and kick them out. Um, you know, your pastor is eventually going to screw up, right? Every pastor in America is completely burnt out right now. Go home to your pastors and give them a hug and tell them they did a good job leading over quarantine and watch them weep openly. Um, I kid you not. Uh, all your pastors are going to fail, and they probably failed a lot in the past year. Um, not only that, but your parents will be wrong. Your spouse will be wrong. People are going to get it wrong. And you can either expect them to be perfect and be disappointed when they don't get it right, or you can have a more realistic and pragmatic expectation to say people get things wrong, and it happens a lot. It's better for your mental health, it's better for your spirit, it's better for your life. Uh, G.K. Chesterton knew this. He was maybe, in terms of people with like great quotes about original sin, this talk could almost just be exclusively Chesterton quotes because he loved this idea. He thought it was the best thing ever. And so I'll give you one today and not like 40. Um, but uh, at the time, he's writing in his book, Orthodoxy, which maybe you've had a chance to look through. He's discussing the consequences of a theology, a religion called theosophy, which is kind of dead. It's not super in anymore. It's one of these like great teacher religions, which is like, oh, every religion has their great teachers, and we should listen to them all, and this sort of thing. And um, it, it takes some cues from Buddhism, too. And, and he talks about reincarnation, for example. And here's what Chesterton says about this religion, but it applies to us today. He says this. Theosophists, the weird religion. Theosophists, for instance, will preach an obviously attractive idea like reincarnation. But if we wait for its logical results, they are spiritual superciliousness and the cruelty of caste. Caste like ranking, ranking caste. Um, and um, he goes on to say uh, that uh, for if a man is a beggar by his own prenatal sins, people will tend to despise the beggar. And that's a huge deal, right? I think it's a huge deal because what we're, what we're saying is, is if we believe everyone has the chance to be perfect and the reason they're not perfect is either a lack of self-control, a lack of perseverance or something like that, uh, then what's going to happen is we're just going to resent people. And we're going to say every beggar out there is a complete and total uh, uh, terrible person because they're just paying for sins they had in their last life. But then every king, every ruler, every prince... They must be virtuous on their own because they also have been good in a previous life and so they're being rewarded for it. And so here's what Chesterton says is the better option. He says this, but Christianity preaches an obviously unattractive idea such as original sin, but when we wait for its results, they are, here we go, pathos, like connecting with people emotionally, understanding, empathy, pathos, and brotherhood. 
and a thunder of laughter and pity. For only with original sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. Ooh. You Texans like distrusting your kings, don't you? <laughs> right? I'll read that again. I'll read that again. Christianity preaches an obviously unattractive idea such as original sin, but when we wait for its results, their pathos and brotherhood and thunder, uh, a thunder of laughter and pity, the things that we want in life, the way we want our society to be destructed, the way we want our relationships to be our friends and neighbors to be, we get that with original sin because only with original sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. Scandalous. I love it. Because what we're doing is we're saying, like Paul says in Romans chapter three, that there's nobody who's righteous. We are leveling it all flat. The thing that we have, every one of us in common, is that we are all human beings born with a set of predispositions of neuroses and habits and bad behaviors, and that they are all fundamentally selfish, and they all were not part of God's plan. And if that is the basis of our understanding of humanity, then nobody can claim to be better than anybody else. It's a beautiful thing. It might help you deal with your long lines of the DMV. It might help you deal with that crazy aunt who keeps sending you all of the political memes. It might help you deal with your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. Um, it might help us recognize that addiction is not exclusively a consequence of a failure to persevere. It extinguishes road rage. It makes the crying baby on the airplane bearable. It puts into context for us why we're having trouble relating with the people that we love most. And maybe we might even have sympathy for a bunch of barely English-speaking Indians outside of Calcutta calling our phones and asking us about our car's extended vehicle warranty. <laughs> If Chesterton's too churchy, I've got another end of this for you. Um, I've been fascinated by this interview that we posted on Mockingbird back in 2018, and it's stuck with me for like two years now, and it's from an atheist uh, in England, I guess three years now, uh, Alain de Baton. And uh, if you know anything about Alain de Baton, he has this very admirable, but if you ask us at Mockingbird, we're like, we love what you're doing, we don't think it's going to work, which is to say we want to be atheist but we want to take sort of the best insights of Christianity, the things that we love that have made our culture great, and bring them and combine them with atheism and put them together for a more pragmatically useful life. And so he's got this program called the School of Life, and he's been working on this for a while. And, and remarkably, um, de Paton actually has so many positive things to say about the doctrine of original sin that I should just share them with you to, to let you know I'm not just speaking as a Christian, but like this is something that could be useful for lots of people. He says... Um, the, the, the interviewer says, um, tell me about your upbringing. And he, and he says, um, you know, I grew up atheist. Uh, here's what he says. I'll read it to you now. I'm very interested in Christian vulnerability, the taboo. Uh, so I spend quite a bit of time discussing that, you know. He says, I love the concept of original sin, the idea that we're all fundamentally broken and fundamentally incomplete. The interviewer says, why do you like that idea? And he says, because it seems to be such a useful starting point. You know, if you imagine a relationship in which two people think they're great, you know, perfect, well, that's going to lead to intolerance and a terrible disappointment when they realize that they're not great and they're not perfect. Whereas imagine a relationship that begins under the idea that two people are quite broken and therefore they need forgiveness from the other. And they need to apply charity to the other. They need to forgive the other. So that, there's, that seems like such a better starting point. 
I like these descriptions of human beings as being really quite flawed and crazy and out of control. And you find that in Buddhism and Judaism and Christianity. The human being is presented as a very fragile, sort of broken creature. And I like that. It's a good starting point, and it also feels true to my experience. It's from an outsider, friends. Maybe a fanboy who just can't come to the show yet. Um, and so, you know, again, if we're going to define this doctrine of original sin as this individual set of neuroses and habits and desires that we all have that are ultimately selfish and we aren't, they aren't part of God's original plan, like, let's not pretend like um, we should be embarrassed by it because we really do have a starting point to make our lives better, the lives of those around us better, simply through the charity of understanding that everyone's broken. Um, and so uh, when you get to that point, then I'm going to tell you the third benefit of original sin. Um, because if you can get to those two points, if you can understand that perfection is, um, is not for you, if you've been inoculated against the idea that you're going to be perfect in any particular way, and you've then begun to incorporate within your spirit that other people as well are not going to be perfect in any particular way, then when perfection does come along, you're ready for it. And it floors you and you're ready to actually explore what perfection might look like. Because if you can embrace original sin into your spirituality, you're going to find the figure of Jesus of Nazareth to be compelling and revealing in a whole completely new and different way. Because through some miracle of the incarnation that theologians still haven't figured out and don't understand, Jesus of Nazareth arrives on the scene without the same neuroses, without the same bad habits, without the selfish desires that aren't a part of God's plan. In fact, he has the exact opposite. He has habits and behaviors that aren't self-oriented fundamentally and are part of God's plan. And the result is that Jesus' life and ministry for the first time is truly selfless, truly whole, truly loving and charitable. And again, for the first time in human history, somebody has actually lived a life that God said, yeah, that, that was the plan all along, what he did. And that's what Jesus offers to all of us. Um, what makes original sin such a relief, I think, is that last piece, that it's not part of God's plan. Because it gives God the option to say, okay, this is not going to how, uh, according to plan, so maybe I can step in and do something about it and get my plan back on track. And that's the good news of original sin, that God has actually done something through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and so uh, it tur turns out, if you read through the epistles as well, um, that this, this recipe of uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, the bloody cross and an empty tomb and uh, a life perfectly lived, that's exactly the cure for original sin. And this all comes together beautifully in um, Paul's letter to Titus. How many people spent time in Titus lately? Not, not me normally. No hands. Good. This is new to you, maybe. Titus is one of those small books in the back of the New Testament written by Paul, and he's writing it to um, a church leader named Titus who is ministering on the island of Crete. And it, it, the context of this letter is fascinating because the island of Crete, it's one of the big islands off the south of, of Greece, um, is a really remarkable place because the whole world had a negative image of everyone who was born on Crete. Like the ancient world looked at Crete and they said, those guys are Cretans. And um, that's actually where that word came from. If you've ever been insulted and someone called you a Cretan or vice versa, I don't know, maybe you're Cretans, I don't know. I'm not saying you are. But, um, but, but that insult, Cretan, 
comes from the island of Crete. Because at the, that, that time, the reputation of the people on Crete were that they were all liars and, and deceivers and cheaters, people who followed their sort of impulses and intuition without a second thought. They had no self-control and you couldn't trust them. And Paul and Titus even quotes one of their poets, a guy named uh, Epimenides. And Epimenides is famous for saying, all Cretans are liars. And Paul quotes that and says, and this is true. <laughs> Uh, and so, so Paul is writing to this, this church leader, and, and what he's trying to do is say, listen, what you need to do, Titus, is you got to find some church leaders who have right doctrine, because if you don't, then the whole church is going to be filled with this continued understanding of people controlled by their own original sins. And you're not going to see people come to know Jesus, and you're not going to have people break free or be broken free uh, from this pattern uh, that they've experienced their whole lives, their own sort of pre-programmed neuroses and poor behaviors. And so um, Titus is, is, is running to Titus, and I'll go ahead and tech team, pull up that Bible verse I put up there. I'll read it to you. Uh, remind them, not them, the Cretans, but remind the leaders that he's appointing. Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Here's the kicker, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, let astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saving is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What's remarkable about this story, what's remarkable about what happens in Paul's letter to Titus, the problem isn't the moral behavior of the people in the church. It is a problem, but it's not the problem. If you go through Titus, a book known for um, most people is the place where he, he says, here's the qualifications for being a pastor and here's the qualifications for being like an elder or a bishop, whatever your church structure is. Um, the reason he needs those qualifications is that the source of the bad behavior in the church is bad theology. It's people running around the church saying, if you just embrace the Jewish concept of circumcision and follow God's laws, then you're gonna be great. And that teaching is going around and nobody's getting better. So Paul says, here's what you need to do. What changed you? What changed you? It was the preaching of the Christian gospel. It was the news that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead and forgave all our sins. That is the thing. He says, that is what is profitable. These things, that is what's excellent and profitable for people. That is what changed you from who you were into something different. So yeah, I love this passage because Paul gets to the heart of original sin. For we ourselves were once these people. All of the above. Murderers, slanders, all the hating, all the backbiting. And then he says, but the solution is Jesus. And it turns out, by the way, if you are a church history person, that this Titus guy, tradition tells us that he did find some leaders and he taught them how to preach a real gospel. Not a gospel of works, but a gospel of grace. And then once he taught them how to do that, they all got together and started preaching it and their churches grew. And uh, that's how they did church back then was they had bishops and they said, hey, Titus, would you be our first bishop? 
and Titus was the first bishop of the entire island of Crete. Again, the problem there is not bad uh, behavior. It was bad theology. And when we're in that place um, where we are overcome by our original sins, when we are wondering if God could still love us in the midst of it, the text says the thing you need is not a finger wagging. The thing you need is not moral exhortation. The thing you need is Jesus himself. So as we get close to closing here, I want to pull up one more clip from Kim's Convenience. Um, don't tell anybody. Live stream out there. I, I see you, you know. Um, this can get me in trouble. Uh, because this is from season five of Kim's Convenience. In fact, it's the second to last episode. And so if you're, if you're spoilers, you know, do this sort of thing. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, but in season five, there's a tragedy that hits the family. And it's played for laughs because you have to laugh at tragedy sometimes where the mother of the family, um, everybody calls her Umma. Uh, she is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the beginning of the episode. And I saw this scene and I cried because my own father has multiple sclerosis. And, and this, um, so if I weep again, I, it's just me working out my ab reaction. That's a mockingbird thing, right? And, uh, and so what's going to happen, I'm going to show you this clip because uh, the setup is that the, the mother figure is very involved in the church, Amma. And she's going from, uh, she's going from, uh, uh, prayer group and prayer group and she's praying for people in our church, but all of the prayers come back the exact opposite of what she wants. She prays for one family, uh, for her husband, and the husband loses the job. And she prays for, one for the pastor of the church, and the next day the pastor comes in and she's hurt her leg, her leg's in a boot. And so this puts a crisis of faith in the mother, and she goes to pray at night before she goes to bed, and um, you, you learn about what's really on her heart. So we'll go ahead and watch that clip now. Now Enrique wants me to come back to class probably to help teach, but uh, I don't know. Store come first, aid come second. Yavor, <laughs> uh. mm. can you pray tonight? Yeah, okay. I mean, out loud, before we sleep. Yavor, did you just know what we're thinking? He's just like an ex-man. <laughs> he need to hear from one of us, out loud. Okay, then you do. What's wrong? When I first get MS, I was so mad at Jesus. I blame him. And now, every time I pray, it's just a backfire. Like he's uh, pushing me away. Yobo, you know the Jesus better than I know the Jesus. But I know that the Jesus never push away, only pull close. Maybe you need to talk to him. It's only gonna make things worse. <sighs> We're talking now, yeah. Pretending I am the Jesus. You can't be the Jesus, you're in underwear. Yeah, this is a holy underwear. Hmm? Yeah. Dear Jesus. Hello, young me. Good to hear from you. I try to be strong. But you feel so far away from me. Please answer my prayer. I'm sorry I blame you. Young me. You feel we are far apart. But I'm right here. I don't hold the grudge. I love you. 
I know. Also, you husband is very amazing. <laughs> he is. <laughs> now go to sleep. Let there be no light. Oh, you poor prog. That's between me and the Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Made it through. I'm okay. Made it through. Um, so the thing that addressed Amma's fear was a word of grace. That God is like the X-Men. He knows your inner thoughts. And that he never pulls away. He only pulls close. And so original sin, friends, it relieves you of the burden of perfection to be the person who prays the perfect way, to be the person with the thoughtful inner life and that God only answers perfect prayers from perfect people. You are delivered from that. And original sin, friends, it also um, relieves you from the burden of expecting other people to be perfect and the suffering and the anxiety of realizing they're not and you can't do anything about it. And it drives you closer to real perfection when real perfection manifests itself. So you may be wondering, friends, how much can this relieving, illuminating, exciting doctrine cost? The answer is not $19.99 plus shipping and handling. The only thing it will cost you is your pride. <laughs> I won't lie to you. I thought about saying it's going to cost you nothing. Because, I mean, it is free, but let's be honest. You got to give up your pride eventually here. Or at least God's going to take it from you one way or another. Cash or check not accepted. Operators are standing by. Again, it may not cost you your wallet, but it will cost you your pride. But it's a small price to pay for the benefits we receive. An understanding of the world that actually makes sense. The ability to connect and love people as they are, not as they ought to be. And a connection with someone who loves you and can actually break the cycle. And so perhaps the most refreshing piece of all of this, friends, is that we can begin to laugh at ourselves. Luther said it himself. Uh, that for Christians who understand the gospel, we can, we can weep with sadness that our sins caused Jesus to die and rise again, but we can also laugh at our own sins because laughter is the language of relief. And so when we are delivered from this original sin, we will indeed be full of laughter. And I give you this in Jesus' name. Amen. There we go.